Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Greg Cox and Cup of Coffee is brought to you at home. I'm actually in my office in Varsity today. Uh, we're about to you, Greg. Uh, I'm at my office. Yeah. So, me, and did you uh, did you bring a drink along today? Yeah, I did, mate. I um, thanks for the heads up. I brought um, I don't know, the viewers, not really the viewers, but the listeners. Like, I can't see my. It's, it's pretty contemporary, so drink. It's called Milo in a jar, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> made at home and brought on the bike, or? Yeah, made it at home. Um, and uh, the muck, you know, the jar's a perfect travel companion. <laughs> so, a um, bit of ice, a couple of um, generous teaspoons of Milo, and then hit, hit it with some milk. And um, then you've got Milo in a jar. How so, good. Uh, mate, and you can sort of mix it up, like, uh, you know, add it to a blender. Um, bit of sausage and sport and you've got you know the perfect post-exercise refueling rehydration also ticks off on your protein as well if you if you use sausage and sport appropriately um you know and blend it up and, and you know you've got a sushi it's like a, a slushy so it's uh it's a really great drink particularly in hot hot conditions you know after exercise because often you know athletes appetites are suppressed in that window so yeah that's awesome, so yeah. I bring it along. Yeah, that's great. I remember when we were there doing some. Um, I was learning a bit of research with you, and you were making them chalky shakes for the boys and the girls when they got out of the, I guess the the oh, heat yeah. the heat tent, and they looked they looked delicious, and they were just smacking them back like ready to go. Um, yeah, mate. You got to have a bit of a slow slogan with your beverages, I think. So that's probably first for the show, huh? Yeah, that's I reckon. Jar. Yep, hundred percent. And even that ice, that ice would melt on the ride and then make it nice and cool. Like Yeah, that's the thing. Like, um, you know, like add a couple of ice cubes to it. And, um, you know, you don't have to blend it up. So, yeah, it's great for the beverage. Now, uh, first of all, what I want to talk about today, Greg, is what is your area of research? Yeah, that's a good question, Nathan. Um, I think... Uh, <clears throat> You know, I've done a range of activities and currently involved in a range of activities that sort of more broadly fall under you know, the interest area of sports nutrition. Um, so I don't, I don't think you know I have one focus area within that. Um, I guess the population that I often have been involved with is endurance-based sports, but that's not been typical of all the research that I've done. Um, so yeah, so that broader umbrella of sports nutrition, and then you know I've been fortunate enough to uh, be involved in a range of different styles of projects in, in within that sort of broader uh, research space under sports nutrition. Yeah, it's interesting to know about. Oh, well, I was actually talking to a an undergraduate yesterday. They said, "Oh, I'm really interested in doing my sports um, nutrition." like journey and I said well you know you haven't even done MNT yet like you haven't been exposed to like 
you know, the bread and butter of what we learn in dietetics, um, you know, go through that first. And if you're still passionate about it, come out. Um, it is, from my experience, not not heavily focused in um, undergraduate dietetic programs, but it, it's definitely, there's heaps of people who are interested in it, you know. I think they might, they'd probably get caught in the exercise science um, net and then maybe do jump over to dietetics. Um, you're obviously interested in triathletes and stuff. Did you go straight, you know, into dietetics straight away or...? Yeah, so I started my university career doing environmental science. I did that for 12 months. Um, at the time, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh, I thought Jacques, Jacques Cousteau was a pretty cool dude. Um, and I was always at the beach, so I thought, hey, I did my year 10 work experience placement at SeaWorld. And so um, I was all destined down that path. And I, after about 12 months, uh, or study, you know, I'd always been engaged heavily in, in, in sport, and my, my dad was you know, competitive as a younger guy, and then even as an older athlete, like a master's athlete, and that sort of got me interested in, you know, more exercise science, so I wanted to chase exercise and understand that field, um, so I switched into a Bachelor of Community Movement Studies at the University of Queensland. <coughs> While I did that, while I was doing that, um, I had a couple of, you know, lectures. So I was fortunate to have some excellent lectures in that degree and a fantastic cohort of people to do that degree. And my physiology subjects, it really became obvious to me and it was a real genuine area of interest, that connection between nutrition and performance. And I still reflect on, you know, the, some of the lecturers walking through studies that Dave Costell had done back in the 70s and 80s, along with others. Um, and that just completely captured my imagination. And that we got, you know, that reflected in my grades as well. Like, um, like I, got a nickname through that period, Professor Kenny, and, and um, <laughs> because I just, you know, just love those activities uh, and that, that sort of interest area. So um, when I was going through that, I um, one of the other students that I was studying with, Neil Byrne, she had a, um, a brother-in-law that was a dietitian, and so Neil and myself thought, wow, you know, that would be pretty cool being a dietitian and then, you know, having done sport. And part of the degree that we were doing, we had a subject, um, certainly a very small subject, um, like in sports nutrition, Holly Frail, who's a, um, been a long-term sports dietitian, um, was taking the subject, and that's that's the journey I still went on. So then I did a, a, like a postgraduate diploma back then. It was the only dietetics degree in Queensland at the time. Uh, they took 15 or 16 subjects a year students a year and I did that you know after I finished my Bachelor of Human Studies and so then became a, a registered like a, a, a credible dietitian at that point. So that was that sort of first part of the journey in terms of my study and my interest. Yeah amazing that's awesome and so yeah there's a bit of jumping around I know even I think um, you know dietetics was quite new at that time as well in, in definitely in Australia like did you did you think about going anywhere else to do it, or were you just like straight to straight to Queensland, stay here? Yeah, like I mean, back in those days, Nathan, like because um, I was uh, raised on the Gold Coast in Burley, 
Um, my dad used to think that going over Southport Bridge, that was like international travel. Um, <laughs> and so coming up to Brisbane was a big step for you know, someone that had grown up in Burley Heads. Um, so yeah, when I did the my undergrad degree, I don't know that I probably looked anywhere else but QUT because that, that was the local university. And the notion of travelling in the state to do degrees, I guess, back in those days was probably, maybe it was familiar to others, but it was probably fine to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think I looked forward than that. I mean, when I did that degree, there was certainly no thought that sports nutrition was really a career option. In fact, you know, DA, DAA, now DA, you know, took them many years to even sort of acknowledge that it was an area of expertise, despite some really high-level individuals um, that have been extremely successful in that area. Mm. So there wasn't a, a clear pathway of opportunity in sports nutrition. Um, and I did work you know, clinically. I worked at Green Slopes Hospital for a while, uh, did a maternity leave there for 12 months, uh, worked at Tweed Hospital, uh, and they had a community health centre. Did some private practice work for Judy Bauer, uh, who's a key player in dietetics even today. Um, and so they, that helped me develop, you know, further my clinical skills. It certainly helped me develop my client interaction skills. And I really, that's one thing I thoroughly enjoyed, regardless of the medium, be it about health or sport. Like I've always loved interacting with individuals and um, you know, providing them opportunity to improve their health and well-being, yeah, through nutrition and also exercise. Um, now I'm gonna I'll go back even further. Like I guess, you know, like you're talking about that time frame. Um, was it a big step to go to Brisbane? Like, because I know when I finished school and people were like, oh, I'm going to Brisbane. Like, see you later. In my head, I'm like, hang on. Like, I can come see you in, in an hour. Like, was it a big step back then to do to move to Brisbane, or did you get the train, or was the train around? Like, <laughs> there was no train, mate. Yeah. Like, uh, there was there was a bus. I didn't even. I got my license late because um, I sort of self-funded myself at uni. My parents weren't in a position really to. You know, they, I didn't have to pay RAM at home, I guess, but, um, but I lived in Brisbane and had to sort of manage that. So I didn't buy a car until I was almost 21. Um, sometimes I'd catch the bus up to Brisbane on a Friday afternoon. It was not uncommon for me to um, pack my backpack and jump on my pushy and ride my pushy back from Brisbane to the Gold Coast. So, uh, you know, that'd take three and a half hours, I guess, like, you know, to do that, and I just leave at three o'clock and rock home at six thirty, like on a Friday night. Um, and I ride along the Gold Coast, like the Gold Coast Brisbane Highway, like. Uh, and I mean, I rode a lot, like I was you know, riding a lot back in those days. Um, and I've always, as always, ridden. But yeah, like that was one mode of transport. Like, and when I lived in Brisbane, I'd only ride my bike. That's all I had. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't get a car till I'd sort of. Had finished, almost finished my undergraduate degree. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. You know, that just the the simplicity of just like, oh, I've got to go to Gold Coast. I'll just jump on my bike. You know, like people. Well, I would love to do that personally, but a lot. I would, 
if you said that to a lot of people now, they'd be like, you're, you're insane, you know? Get the tram via the train and get the plane or, you know, just get an Uber. It's like, hang on, no, like, let's get out. Let's, let's in, increase our endurance capacity, get, like, a long ride in, um, you know. That's I think, <laughs> you know, I think the bus was, like, 10 bucks, and I'd be like, well, it's too expensive. But I'll save my $10 over the week. So, yeah. That's, that's amazing. That was not uncommon to do that, yeah. Yeah. Um, could you please take us through your research pathway from beginning until now. So you said you you practiced clinically. What uh, what did you do then? Did you jump into research or what happened? Yeah, so when I was on the Gold Coast um, and working at Tweed, I was working there part-time. I got an opportunity to start working with canoeing. Uh, so paddle, so sprint, kayak, um, and they were based on the Gold Coast um, in that facility at Pizzy Park that got established uh, in the early 80s or in the 80s sometimes probably this probably sorry probably late 80s I started working there sort of in the mid 90s early to mid 90s after I finished um, and had some experience working in sport and enjoyed that um, in 1995 I went to Canberra and did the Berry Vale um, Sports Nutrition Fellowship at the AIS uh, with Louise Burr, um, and that was through 95 to 96. I came back to Australia, like back to Queensland, uh, and then worked for a little bit and went overseas because I thought I wanted to do my master's. Got accepted into a couple of universities over there. Um, was about to start and then got offered a job back, um, back in Australia at the AIS in 1998. Um, and so and I, I was employed at the AS from 1998 to 2018, so 20, just over 20 years. Um, and during that period, like I got my first taste of research, you know, being, you know, having Louise as a boss, um, you know, there was no, there was every opportunity to get involved in research, both as a such, you know, as a co-researcher and then also as a, a subject and, and, you know, participating as a subject in research is a really valuable experience for someone that wants to go into research. So I, I would, you know, I would volunteer for a whole range of studies, um, cooling projects like, uh, you know, alcohol projects. I remember one study we did where we looked at the effects of um alcohol consumption post-exercise on muscle glycogen synthesis. And so, you know, I'm at, I'm at work, do a couple of hours of hard exercise in an environmental chamber, and then you slam down, you know, 11 shots of <laughs> vodka, um, be completely written off at work, you know, make a fool of yourself. Um, so that was, those sorts of experiences were really valuable. Um, and so during that window, I started my master's at Deakin uh, Uni and so, and I did a master's which involved coursework and also a research project <clears throat> as well. Uh, and like I'd been involved in a range, like a few projects by that stage and the project that we I took on for my master's, it was a, a project around creating supplementation in female team sport. So we, we had the Matildas, uh, Australian women's soccer team, 
and we looked at the effects of acute supplementation um, in a simulated soccer protocol that we developed. So I worked with physiologists, Doug Tumulty, um, Heather Louise, also Ingo Mahika uh, from the Basque country. Um, he was out as well and he got involved in that, in that project. Um, and what we looked at was that five-day supplementation. And the, the, one of the really unique things about that study was the fact the detail that we put into developing the simulation protocol that we did. So, you know, we we watched, you know, a whole range of games and then they we looked at the work rest ratios and the types of activities that they did. We characterized the, the gameplay and then we and then we simulated that in indoor soccer pitch. And so we even had um, components that were skill based elements to keep them interested and engaged through the through that. And some of the protocol was standardised activities at a particular speed, and then other components were performance captured elements. So it was like, you know, we, we even made a, a, a CD, like a video, like a, or a CD actually. It's my first CD that I cut. Um, <laughs> and it was like the, it was like a beat test, but like more complicated than that with a simulation element. And, you know, there was a genuine interest in seeing if we could improve their repeat sprint ability. And that was born from the idea that the coaches wanted to, to facilitate a change in, their, in the players. So they, they saw that as a performance gap for their team. And so we came up with a study that was a really applied study um, that simulated soccer so you could easily translate the information back to the players and also the coaching, coaching staff, and that 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 study, um, you know, even though that was published, you know, close to two thousand sometime, you know, I, I got a request I think this week for it, like um, in the original manuscript for someone doing a meta analysis in that space. So yeah, like it was a really neat study, and I guess I've always reflected on that uh, that original study in looking at other opportunities for studies to be involved with. So that was my master's project. Um, and we actually did that study twice, and I won't go into details of that, but, um, and that was refining the protocol to make sure that we got good engagement throughout. Um, from that period of time, I continued to be exposed at work um, to various research and then decided to do a PhD um, and I did that over a period of about seven years. Um, and during that window, went to you know, two Olympics, um, moved in the state, had two young children. I walked to the masters in physiotherapy. Um, we got flooded. Um, I lost my dad. I went to major world championships and a whole range of other activities. And was it ideal? No, no it wasn't ideal, but. Um, I got it done. And so, and I guess the journey through that window was about, you know, being a little more um, responsible for all elements of the research process. So, you, you know, being involved at work at the AIS um, and being involved with the WEEZ, um, you know, we had a lot of good ideas, we had a lot of opportunity. Um, and so, 
you know, and you were part of a big team of people. And I got really good at certain elements of that research process. Um, so, you know, to give you an example, um, in terms of athlete or participant, recruitment, participant engagement, management of participants in the lab, managing the lab, facilitating other people into that capturing the data. But that's where my real strengths were and that's where I spent most of my time in that, that sort of area. So through a range of different projects, that's where I was you know, heavily improving my skills because that's where my, my skill set sort, of, you know, um, sort of sat. And, you know, those, that, that sort of skill set you need in that environment is you need to be someone that's agile, that you can pivot, you can respond to you know, various challenges, and you can be creative in finding solutions to make sure that the research project can still continue to move and you have to do that in a manner where you're taking both the participants and also the other researchers along with you in that journey as well. So during that window, I, I did you know a range of studies that you know, uh, allowed me to fulfill the requirements of a PhD. Um, and like I said, I would, and I, I don't know that I'd do it differently. Um, I. You know, there were certain times I was really struggled in that process, um, trying to uh, clearly define a period of time so that commit to a research versus other demands, those daily demands that come up on the service in sports was really challenging for me. But yeah, I got through it and we did some great research activities. And you know, one of the projects that we did has helped define sports nutrition guidelines sort of moving forward. So is it that valuable? Yeah, it was, it was really valuable. And did it make a, a reasonable contribution to what, how we practice today? Yeah, by, by, you know, and, and that was partly because I wanted to ask questions that after you know, a number of years working in sport that were genuinely of interest to me and were really well suited to sport to answer that question yeah yeah definitely um that's amazing like seven years for you know that, that that's huge for so much to happen in that period of time as well like for those who don't understand i guess the research project like for something as like say a sports or a performance project you need to have like you said participants the time frame like that you know there's lots of control variables that really can't go wrong to to get a, a good outcome um, and I'll definitely commend you in saying, like, even when I've been around you in the lab, like you're very involved with the participant. You're, you know, you're hovering. You're like, you're like a dad over them. You know, what can I get you? What do you need? Have you done this right? Um, and like me, even watching you, I learned those things. Like in terms of a sporting performance study environment, um, you need to be on top of it so the results are, you know, uh, are, are quite valid. So that's great. And so, did you, in terms of the seven-year period, is that? part-time, but that was a part-time project? Yeah, like, I think over seven years, like, I was enrolled part-time. Um, I, um, I think there was a couple of windows, like, leading into Olympics, where I took, you know, I might have taken six months, like, to stop my tenure, like, so that the clock wasn't ticking while I was, um, you know, overseas or whatever. It's not uncommon you know, when I was working full-time in sport to be in those Olympic years. And, 
in, in my whole life was orientated around the Olympic years. That's how we used to talk at home. What's on this year? The Olympics, or we're two years out from the Olympics, or whatever. So in an Olympic year, you know, it might be away for three or four months of the year, and so it's hard to while you're then servicing sports, being away a lot, and then trying to continue on with the PhD. So yeah, so that was part time, and um, there was different focuses through that um, that sort of windows. But there was some some periods of time which were you know, double full time as well, like on it. So um, you know, one of the major studies that we did <coughs> where we did a a training and nutrition intervention study uh, that was um, that was a five week intervention um, where we you know managed uh, participants' dietary intakes. So we fed them like everything they ate like five weeks, and we managed their exercise load. Um, you know that was extremely intense windows of of time. So that data was collected over a series of five week blocks. Um, and we had heavy dietary control. Um, and it was one of those critical or really important projects, you know, in the history of the AOS nutrition department, which allowed us to further develop our skills around, you know, research dietary management techniques and dietary standardization. So, you know, we had two groups of um, participants and essentially both of them had the same baseline um, dietary intake and they were male endurance trained athletes so training about <clears throat> I think it was about sort of 20 hours a week um, and what we did is that we try to align their dietary intake the total energy requirements with the daily energy load of the Size. So on higher activity days, they would consume more calories. On lower activity days, they would maintain that five grams per kilo of carbohydrate. Um, and so that was the baseline intake, and then you know increase beyond that for one of the groups. So one group, when they exercise, they got additional carbohydrate when they exercise. So their total energy intake was accelerated by changing their carbohydrate intake. Um, and that, that additional carbohydrate was consumed either before or during the exercise and some of the surplus carbohydrate was consumed immediately after. So essentially those athletes, every time they exercise, they exercise with high carbohydrate availability and we were quite aggressive in terms of feeding them carbohydrate during their training sessions. The other group, they had the baseline intake but when they exercised, they got an increase in uh, fat and also a small amount of protein to offset the increase in energy expenditure. And that was equivalent number of calories to the carbohydrate group. It's just that they got that in the form of um, fat, majority, the majority of it was. And so we had things like the famous cream drink. Um, so athletes would go out for a ride and they'd have one bidding full of cream with diet topping and a splash of milk in it so that it was drinkable. <laughs> uh, we, we use macadamia nuts. Uh, macadamia nuts, just out of interest, are the lowest carbohydrate nut that you can get. So I remember buying a commercial bag of macadamia nuts, like maybe 50 kilos or something. Oh. <laughs> like, um, you know, salted macadamia nuts and they were all bagged up or whatever. 
So guys would go out you know, for a five-hour ride and they'd have you know, three bags of macadamia nuts and you know, three cream drinks and off they'd go. And then the other group would have you know, three sports drinks, a couple of cereal bars and two gels or something. You know, so, so they accelerated their energy intakes but was either focused around carbohydrate or focused around uh, fat. And you know, the, the interesting thing you know, before and after the intervention, the dietary intervention, we got them to do an exercise protocol where we could understand their metabolism, but we could also understand their performance response to those dietary, dietary uh, interventions, both baseline and then also are under uh, um, conditions of when we aggressively fed them carbohydrate and when we um, only fed them water and, and looked at their performance and metabolism and one of the really cool techniques that I got to use was to look at the exogenous oxidation of the carbohydrate um, that they were consuming during exercise, both before and after the intervention. And that technique, um, I can't remember the exact details, but you use a radioactive isotope that you put into a solution um, and essentially, um, that attaches um, itself, you know, to the, the carbohydrate in the beverage. And then, when you're metabolizing metabolizing that carbohydrate, that isotope is then expelled, and then you capture that. And then you can measure the amount of that uh, through a scintillation counter, and then calculate the grams of carbohydrate that you've actually just oxidized from the beverage that you've consumed during the exercise. So it was absolutely fascinating. And you could see it in real time, which was even crazier. Like, it was so exciting to watch it happen. You're like, wow, they just drank that brand carbohydrate and now they're expelling it and we're capturing it and then measuring it. So yeah, that was a pretty neat technique. that was complicated because we were doing that at an institute, like at the AIS in Canberra. We had to have licenses for radioactive materials, which we didn't have. We had to store the radioactive isotope off-site, like at a hospital that had a proper, you know. So all those logistics had to work through all that and had to find a solution, you know. And so that was really intense. The outcome of the, the research was that, you know, those athletes that train regularly in that high carbohydrate environment increased their ability to oxidize carbohydrate they consumed during exercise at the end of the intervention. And so, you know, that sort of helped establish the terminology training the way you write it. And so if you're an athlete where you're looking at consuming carbohydrate aggressively during competition itself, well, then you need to reverse that in training. Interestingly, we didn't find any difference in the um, in GLUT4, which is the transport of the carbohydrate across the muscle. So we didn't think that that, that was the... Um, now, that doesn't seem to be the barrier for your ability to oxidise carbohydrate that you consume. The barrier seems to be at the gut. And research, we... In, Human research hasn't explored that because it's very difficult, but certainly in animal studies have shown if you feed a rat a high-carbohydrate diet, it increases the expression of um, transports for carbohydrate across the gut. Um, and so, you know, 
backtracking on our results, that's that, that was the end end product. So you're you know, essentially training the gut um, so that you can tolerate and absorb more carbohydrate. The situation where you're likely to be aggressive with the carbohydrate intake during the exercise sort of format. And that was important for me because, you know, I was involved heavily in triathlon. You know, I, I was working with Triathlon Australia, both across Olympic distance athletes and also across Ironman athletes as well. Some of them being extremely successful, you know, being successful at both Olympics and also Ironman World Championship events. So, yeah, it was really applicable information, you know, for my group of athletes that I worked with and it has a much broader appeal and that's been incorporated into sports nutrition guidelines you know, today and it's been further verified and supported by future research as well. So that was that was probably the, the big ticket item in, in the PhD. And that's a, like I think what you explain there is like and you can hear it through your voice and you watch I'm watching your face like when you reflect on these things if you're not interested in it it's going to be really hard for you to be that fascinated and continue doing something like you know for seven years as well you know to put it on and off on and off um and have that five week intervention like you're getting up early mornings you're making food for everyone like for five weeks like so if you're not passionate about it i would say it make it a lot harder and like you said earlier you know you had some genuine questions that you were interested in you'd worked in sports dietetics like how can i answer these questions and you've, you've gone and done that and it'd be hard to do that if you weren't um you know, in the space or interested. So that's really cool to see that. And like, like you said, you contribute to, you know, the profession and guidelines and stuff. So that's awesome. I remember um, we had a, a series of five-week blocks. Uh, and I remember, like, there was a couple of nights where I'd get home um, at about 11 and uh, we were living in Watson. We had two young kids and I'd get home at 11. I'd lay down in bed for maybe three hours um, and I'd get up at two, have a shower and then you know, go back into work. Um, and I had to do that a few times just to keep on top of the, the volume of work. And it sort of also taught me about you know, what's a realistic Capacity and people in a research project when you're managing a team of people, people have different capacities. Um, you know, some people couldn't survive on that. Um, I've sort of been lucky to always have good capacity in that space, but I've also been mindful that not everyone does. So you have to work within the capacities of those people that are you know, that you're you're managing within the team as well. That's awesome, and I, I won't help. I know um, I did get much time this morning. You're gonna fly at ten. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you, you mentioned earlier about being a participant in research, and I've done some stuff with some honors students and things with Ben and Chris on the bike, and I had some blood work, but I've never had the biopsy. Um, and so I put that on my list to ask you about it. I know have you, you've had a few, haven't you? Yeah, I've had a few biopsies. Like, uh, I think I had a, I think it's about 10, 11, or 12. I can't, I can't really remember. Um, but it was around that sort of number. I've also uh, been involved in a couple of studies where we use um, rectal probes. They were as much fun as a biopsy. <laughs> um, and I could, I could tell you a funny story on, on that if you... Yeah, I'm, I'm all ears, yeah, 100%. So we, we were doing... Shona Holson, who's a recovery physiologist, Shona's extremely well-known um, for recovery 
interventions around around exercise and she was one of the first researchers to really to look at the effects of cooling on on uh, on exercise performance and recovery and she asked me I was really quite fit at this point um, and she asked me to do a study that where you have to um, set a rectal probe she said look I just need you for a couple of trials right and so you know you jump jump into a, a heat environment we did a bout of exercise we jump out and then she applied different cooling protocols to you and she said look I've got two or three that I need to you know test out and so and I remember one of them being you know it was like 20 minutes at maybe 18 degrees or whatever or 20 degrees so not particularly cold but it was a 20 minute period and so I was super lean at the time and you would get absolutely freezing in that period of time and then you you do the recovery protocol then you have to get back into this heat chamber and then you do an exercise you know low so Shona asked me and I've got two or three to trial and then we get to three and she's like oh can you do another couple and I'm like oh yeah okay so then you know we're up to five and then what about another one I'm like hey yeah right oh six and I remember on the seventh one, um, I was out in the, I was outside the physiology lab and they had these to- toilets and they had to walk out the physiology lab into the toilets. And I'm, I'm in a cubicle and the cubicles are quite large and I've got, I've got my bike pants on, I've got the rectal probe, like, um, which is like, like, think about it like a, like a spaghetti stick, right? So it's probably maybe twice the, or maybe three times the thickness of the spaghetti stick but it's you know you can work it so it bends and whatever then you have to put ky jelly on it <laughs> and then you, you know and it's got a little marker on so you have to get it i think it's about 11 or 12 centimeters you know slide that um up your your bum i guess mm. i can say that whatever way you want to say yeah. that yeah and so I'm in this cuticle, I've got my knees down, legs spread out, you know, and I've got the KY jelly, you know, um, about to insert it, and someone's walked in the door and then tried to come into the cuticle. <laughs> and and I, I'm like, I felt like I was doing something inappropriate in this cuticle, like, and I'm like about to violate myself. <laughs> and so I'm like, and I was like, ah, stop it. And so anyway, I... I did what I needed to, and after that, I said, "Shana, that's it. You've had me six times. I'm, you're not. I'm not doing it again." So um, I haven't done a rectal probe since. And you know, new technologies these days, you can, you know, get away with you know using the thermal pills, which you can either take orally or insert rectally. But yeah, that that, that were the days when rectal probes were around. So yeah, but biopsies, I had a few of those, and um, you know, they were equally challenging experiences as well and I think if you're involved in the study where you're going to ask an athlete or a participant to do those types of um, intrusive type uh, uh, activities to capture data mm. you know you've got to have experience in yourself you can't walk someone through a muscle biopsy if you've never done one yeah yeah, no. yeah I think um, it's interesting like, and you, obviously you ran into problems recently last year when, you know, when athletes will maybe they'll um they'll go to the bathroom and then, and then they lose the 
the temperature pill or whatever and um, so it's like maybe maybe those previous techniques were like maybe the you know gold standard or the, or the best way to go um, but then then like recruitment is hard then because people don't always want to do that and I've always I've previously heard you know like um, just you know um, you know general people saying oh how hard is it to you know ride a bike for three hours or you know or run on a treadmill for and it's like well hang on like these guys are fanging it like these these people are flying like these tests that these athletes are doing like it's very hard to get you know to find that population of people if you don't if you don't know the right um, the right invitation to give out I think so running through the bike I guess I guess running through the protocol yourself and then finding the right people to do it because it's not it's not easy like when you do a VO2 or whatever it's not super enjoyable um, for the athlete so yeah it's a huge important part to I guess experience it yourself and I think you know the one thing I did learn through the biopsy phase was that um, you know it's quite it is quite intrusive activity um, and as a researcher you want to get a good biopsy sample but that should never be celebrated in front of an athlete and I or a participant and I have seen that done I could only imagine how the participant was feeling when uh, the research is going oh yeah that's great you know that's more than what we actually needed or whatever <laughs> and you know, the fact that you can't regrow that bit of muscle that would just ripped out of your leg that sort of uh, thought or reflection you know needs to be done you know, behind closed doors um, and so yeah so it is a tricky environment some people don't respond to those because you know there's a certain level of um hygiene that has to be displayed and rigor and, and that can be really foreign for someone that's a healthy participant because it's almost like going into hospital and having you know minor surgery so um well it's not that extensive but mm. um so yeah so you've got to be really careful to make sure that the participant's really comfortable with the process uh and also genuine about you know what their investment is and being respectful that they're making a fantastic, genuine contribution to allowing us to further understand the science of exercise and nutrition. And so, yeah, I think all participants need to be treated with that sort of level of respect. And and it's important as a researcher that you demonstrate that gratitude, gratitude back to your participants as well. Yeah, I think that definitely... Um well, that shows and what I was saying before about your, like that comes back to your knowledge of, you know, participant management and um, recruitment and things like that, like making sure that they are, they do feel like they are, um, you know, not just riding a bike, you know, for, for a researcher. What, what, are you, what are you currently working on at the moment in terms of research, Greg? Yeah, so we've got a couple of projects um, going on at the moment. Um, where's sort of writing up a project where we looked at um, dietary intakes of AFL players on catered versus non-catered training days. So the catered days were their higher training days, the non-catered days were their lower training days. And whether or not like an integrated food service model, you know, actually changed dietary intake. That was at one a professional um, AFL club. Um, we recently did a performance health program with Triathlon Australia, like as on the Triathlon Nutrition League, and that was with a group of development athletes, so we did a eight-week um, health performance health program 
with a focus on nutrition, and that program was delivered remotely. So we had a series of education lectures um, and workshops that the, the um, participants you know, went through. And so those participants were all the emerging young athletes in Australia, like uh, at a certain level of um, competitiveness. There's about 22 or so, 24 of them maybe. And about 18 of those actively participated in the study that we did. And what we did is we um, assess their nutrition knowledge and their dietary intakes before and then after the nutrition intervention uh, or the performance health program. And so we're just sort of working on the final details of that at the minute. Um, we, throughout last year in the project that you were involved with, we looked at the effects of paracetamol or acetamycin. Um, so as a pre-cooling agent, like for exercise in the heat, um, and that was with a master's student. Um, and then the most recent project has been looking at um, the clinical practice pathways and uh, assessment tools sports dietitians report using to managing um, energy availability with athletes. And that was a survey-based um, uh, research. And that will help inform a series of projects uh, for a PhD candidate, um, Amy Lee Bowler. And Amy is focusing in on, you, you know, the current assessment tools that are used to help manage, or that are used to manage, not help manage, but used to manage energy availability. And whether or not, um, one of the questions we want to ask is whether or not um, managing or assessing whole body glycemia with the use of continuous blood glucose monitors like a, provide us any insight into the acute manipulation of energy availability. The tools that we use for energy availability for clinical assessment are tools that, um, that or flags that occur once the person's been in low energy availability for some time. And so, you know, in triathlon, we currently do like an annual performance health evaluation like once a year, but it's like, it's that sort of assessment's a real tertiary assessment of their energy availability. Like it's not something that's a primary sort of assessment. And so trying to look at tools that as a practitioner like I could incorporate into my practice to help an athlete match their energy requirements on you know, various training days. And the sports I've worked with, um, you know, the last 10 years, triathlon and spring canoe, both of those sports have days that are really different in terms of their daily energy requirements because of the exercise that the athlete undertakes. Um, and sometimes even the non-exercise activities like particularly in canoe, because often those guys are not, they're not, um, they're also working as well, some of them in physical jobs, that can also contribute to their energy expenditure. So um, trying to think about tools that, as a dietitian, I could incorporate into my practice and whether or not that they are reliable and valid tools to assess energy availability. And then it's not just about assessing low energy availability, because that's like coming from a, a deficit perspective. You know, I'd like to look at energy availability from how do you optimise it to 
you know, from, promote performance in training and that performance then driving favourable adaptations uh, for the athlete to optimise competition performance down, down the track. So that's where it's those areas. And um, we're also looking at fluids, so that heat sort of stuff that we did with paracetamol. Got another PhD student that's looking at fluid intake behaviours um, of of athletes, team sport athletes. So, so yeah, so all all really applied type of work, but um, work that's of genuine interest and questions that I guess I've become interested in, you know, after working you know, in sport for, for many years. So questions that have been born through observations I've made and both of athletes' observations that coaches sometimes make and think, oh, I wonder how we can, you know, they they learn from an athlete through observing the athlete. So, and, and a coach's insight to an athlete, you know, should never be discounted, like when you're managing the dietary intake of an athlete. Um, and, you know, even when they say things that you might think, oh, that's, you know, they would what does that mean? Like you need to reflect on that and try to understand how, because they, they see the athlete every day. Like we see them once every couple of weeks, if we're lucky, mm. maybe less often than that. And that was something I learned really early on. Never be dismissive of observations coaches make because they make some very insightful comments. They might not say it in a way that like reflects science, but you know, you should never be dismissive of that. And, I, and I've asked, you know, we've asked as a team a big question based off reflections coaches have made to us and then try to answer that from a research perspective. See, plenty of stuff going on. That's amazing. And I do, I do understand what you were saying about in terms of the coach's relationship with the athlete. Like, when I did some stuff with KOB last year, I was like, oh... Like, the coach is basically, like, the second dad or the older brother. Like, they're like, you know, be here on time, do this. How's school going? Like, you know, did you eat last night? Like, it's very, for, especially for that population of athletes who are not, I guess, self-managing. They're still at school or they're in a young development program or they're 18, coming up 20. They're still not quite, um, you know, they're not a developed adult yet. So they still they still need to be managed um, quite um Not hyperactively, but, you know, they still need to be... Um, sought to as a, as a human as well as an athlete yeah and even when they're adults mate, they still need to be managed yeah <laughs> is there yeah. any other questions in your head that you're thinking of in future I always ask this question to um, everyone on the podcast saying you know what's next uh, or are you just kind of waiting to see the outcomes of this these kind of blocks of research yeah like I think um, the stuff that we've done in triathlon like around nutrition knowledge and dietary intakes of Athletes, <clears throat> I'd like to extend that in the further in coaches and see what you know, they know. There's not been a lot done in that space. Um, so, what is the knowledge? How do they how do they um, how do they educate their athletes around nutrition? Are some of the critical considerations around nutrition that we see as practitioners, but they see them in the same way. I think that's an area of interest. Um, the fluid intake behaviours. Um, I genuinely have an interest in that. Um, I think fluid intake is a really malleable like um, activity that an athlete engages in, and so the environment that you 
quickly outplayed any can modify their fluid intake. And so, so visual cues, non-visual cues, um, even things like, you know, voluntary fluid intake, like does the size of the drink bottle influence their fluid intake? No one's ever done, done that. And so fluid availability, like what, how, does, how do you do that? And that's something that I've, you know, observed from athletes. You give them a large bottle and they go for a long ride and they drink that bottle and, you know, perceptively, I'm sure they drink that, knowing every time they, I've, I've still got three hours to go, I'll just pace myself through that. And then you give them a smaller bottle or a larger bottle, however you manipulate it, they, they do the same thing. They end, end up pacing themselves through that same, that bottle, it's just a different size. And that will often depend on whether or not there's availability of other fluids as well. So those types of things I'd love to explore, because we get really tied up on nutrients, but what about behaviours that then influence how you consume those nutrients? And I think they're equally important. So the energy availability space, like I said, Amy's just doing a PhD in that, and I think we'll probably just answer or ask more, we'll create more questions than the answer in that space. So that could be a whole you know, series of projects. And, you know, in a sport like triathlon, you know, managing an athlete's energy availability is is key to their performance development. So that athlete, you know, in the elite circles, they have a long career development pathway. So they're, you know, they might come into the sport as a 16-year-old. Olympic success is, you know, we see Olympic success in athletes that are in their mid to late 20s. And in fact, most women that have won the Olympics have been older than 30, and so, or close to 30. So to get an athlete from 16 to an Olympic gold medalist, you've got 12, 10, 12 years of investment. And so managing their health, like, is a key performance gap for that individual. So beyond anything, you've got to manage their health because they won't be able to absorb the training over a long period of time to have the adjust or have the adaptations that then allow them to perform at that high level. And so getting energy availability and it's an area that we've now, you know, more clearly understanding has a major impact on health and well being. And if you don't get that right in, in, in the sport like triathlon, the consequences of that are significant. So and it typically ends up in an athlete having a bone stress injury, which is a long period of time for recovery. In other sports, the consequence of, you know, not getting energy availability right may not be as high as that. So they might just have a full period of training that they can bounce back from much more quickly. So that area is a general interest and it's certainly an area that I've changed my practice in over the years and it's something that I probably will keep you know, at heart and as a focus for you know, my future studies in one way, shape or another, sort of moving forward. Yeah, that's huge. I think in in terms of even, you know, I'm only, I'd say still call myself like a recent graduate. Like we learn all the, the nutrition knowledge and, you know, do extra courses and things like that. But you can't, it, no, no matter how much you know and how much knowledge you pass on to an athlete or a client or whoever, even a person in the hospital, if you can't influence their behaviour and they don't take on that knowledge and actually do something with it, yeah, I would say you haven't been like as 
impactful as you could have been. And that's like huge what you're saying about, you know, not so much focusing about the nutrients and, you know, have this much food and this much carbs or, and th- at this timing, whereas what are you going to do with this knowledge? Are you going to put, are you actually going to put an extra water bottle holder on your bike or are you going to tape muesli bars to your handlebars, things like that. Um, and then the energy availability stuff, I think that, that, you know, I never really heard of that type of stuff, but it's quite emerging and stuff. So I think that area will grow as well as like, obviously with the PhD that comes out and then like you said asking asking more questions and you'll answer yeah and the behaviour stuff Nathan it's not just it also helps inform your own practice and you know I've been in sports I've worked with you know managed a lot of eating you know environments so both you know in, in, in a training format like, but also in a meal format as well and you can, just simply how you present foods can accelerate or slow the intake of a food depending on how you make it available to the athlete. And so, you know, I've never done a study on it, but um, in, in canoeing, we, we, they have a training centre and athletes would have a kitchen. And during periods of camps, that kitchen will become fully functional, so it'll have lunch and in the breakfast and lunch there. And one of the things I learned was like, if I put um, sliced cheese in the fridge, so you buy a pack of 24 sliced cheese and 48 sliced cheese, that's, that cheese would last, you know, it might be 500 grams, that cheese would last 48 hours. If I put the same um, amount of cheese in the fridge as a block, that cheese would last maybe three to four months. <laughs> Yeah, and so because there's the step that's required. In fact, there's more than one step. So the athlete has to take the cheese out of the fridge. They have to get a chopping board. They have to find a knife, and then they have to slice it before they can eat it. And so each time you put a step into them eating the food, you will alter their the speed at which they eat that that food. And so. I've taken those learnings, which haven't been through research, but into various recovery bar environments, food environments, because if I want environments that accelerate food intake, I'll use some strategies that I know through observation allow athletes to eat quicker, whereas um, if I want to slow them down, well, then I'll use other techniques. So it's like it's like an orange, you know, an athlete looks at an orange and, you know, they're mes- mesmerised by, you know, how do I get into this thing? <laughs> oh, I've got to use a knife, or you know. And so, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy oranges for athletes, but I just sit in the fridge. Mandarins, they'll eat mandarins. They'll eat bananas. They'll eat apples, but oranges, no. Nah. Watermelon, if you cut it up, they'll eat it. If it's left, wouldn't eat it. You know, yeah. So there's all those sorts of things. And I guess the one thing you know, um, you know, as a dietitian. You know, your food knowledge, so content, you know, nutrients is important. Your food knowledge and around the behaviours and how people engage with food is equally important. And as a dietitian, you should, you know, put yourself in environments where you learn more about the nutrition of food um, and the nutrients that contain in food, but also in environments that learn or help you learn about the behaviours of the individuals that you're working with and how they interact with food as well. So 
I've always made sure I've been in those environments to learn about how the athletes I work with eat. And I try to provide environments that allow for that casual observation without interfering with how they might engage in foods and then using that information to then integrate into how I might consult with that athlete you know, down, down the track. So, um, And as a dietitian, I think you have to know food better than anyone. Like that's your challenge as a diet, dietitian and you should bring that into the research questions that you ask you know, if you're at all interested in, in doing research. That's such great insight and I reflect back now with my time at the canoe camp and like when we bought I think like 60 bread rolls and it was like make your own sandwich and I've never seen that like teenagers eat so quick like they were just throwing everything on there like it was just all it was like a subway station they could just make their own like we even mashed up the avo we cut up the cheese like we cut all the shredded the vegetables and they were just keen you know keens of bean they didn't have to do anything they just had to sit up grab the bread roll make whatever they want um and like giving them the choice was great, I think. So that's cool. Mm. Oh, before I let you go, Greg, I just you've mentioned it a few times. Just your your experience on the Olympics, and I'm, I'm sure you, the the learnings that you spoke about today would have come from from those experiences. And you've you've told me some stories previously um, about your time there, building a building a kitchen in a toilet block. It, it, appe- it appeared like not literally, but the size of the room. Um, could you explain some, uh, you, you know, you told lots of stories today, maybe a story from the Olympics or your, I guess, reflections from there? Yeah, the Olympics, um, like I've been fortunate to have gone to Beijing 2008, um, 2012 London and also 2016. Uh, and I've been around supporting athletes both in uh, Sydney in 2000 and Athens 2004. Um, in 2016, you know, I was very fortunate and was the nutrition lead for the Australian Olympic team and, you know, took that role on really seriously and we had a range of different environments to manage over there. Uh, one of the environments was outside of the village. We had a, um, an off-site facility called Ipanema um, Towers and we catered for a range of athletes over, I think it was about a four-week period. Um, and so I engaged an external caterer, worked with that caterer sort of for over 12 months um, to help execute like quite a, um, an elaborate um, food service model that worked across different sports. So rowing, we had beach volleyball, triathlon, um, road cycling, um, and a few other athletes at times in that environment. So it was, it was you know, had to try to meet their competition schedules, you had to meet their training, you know, schedules as well. It required, you know, great consultation with locals, getting integrated with them, getting their trust, um, and having a real genuine, ex- you know, experience with them. And I thoroughly enjoyed that element of the, of Rio. One of the funny stories, I remember um, <clears throat> one of the challenges that we had to overcome, so we were staying in Ipanema and it was in an apartment block, but that particular apartment block didn't have a commercial licence to prepare food. So the food that we used for the, ca- the caterer that provided the food, was that was prepared in an off-site kitchen which was about 40 minutes outside of Ipanema. And so then that food then had to travel 
from the commercial kitchen, you know, to the to to the um, to Impanina towers and then be delivered. And it could be reheated and managed, but it couldn't actually be prepared there, right? So basic food items could, but like large complex meals had to be prepared on site. So in 2015, leading into the Olympics, I was over there for the test event triathlon, and I met up with um, Claudia. She was the owner of the catering business. And the hotel manager, or the apartment manager, she, we'd arranged to meet Claudia at the kitchen facility, which was, you know, 40 minutes outside of Ipanema. So we're, I'm, I'm there with the, with, um, the apartment manager and also the high-performance manager, manager of Triathlon, Bernard Savage. And Bernard's a really big guy, bald hair, looks, he's got a, band, he's got a bandana on, right? Like he's trying to, you know, fit in with the locals of Brazil. <laughs> and um, so we're driving out to this, this kitchen facility and the lady that we're with, we drive into this gated shopping village and I said oh, to the lady, oh, okay, so are we, is this a, is this where we're, you know, is this where the kitchen facility is? She goes, oh, no, no, she goes, and I said, oh, so do we want to get a coffee? What's the, what's the plan? And she's like, oh, no, we just have to wait till the driver comes so that we can get escorted out to the kitchen. And I'm like, oh, I thought you said you'd been there. And she said, oh, look, I have been there, but she said, I've only been there once and I don't want to get lost getting there because it could be really dangerous. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Oh, what what do you mean by dangerous? And she says, Well, probably not so much dangerous for me, but certainly dangerous for you um, and Bernard because you know they would, you know, the locals would realise that you're foreigners. And she called us gringos. Yeah. And um, so we need to make sure that we get there securely because it, it's quite a dangerous part of um, of Rio. And I'm thinking, ah, oh. and and I said to her, well, what about Bernard? You know, he's got he's got the bandana on. He <laughs> should be fine. And she goes, oh no, they would just think he's a gringo with a bandana. And <laughs> yeah. um, so we had to wait for this driver, and he took us out, and you know, we didn't have an issue or anything. But um, but having good relationships with people, um, always trying to find solutions. I've always been solution focused. Um, and, and the Olympics, there was a whole range. Like Rio uh, was a bit like, you know, a car accident sort of happening, unfolding in front of you sort of thing. And it was, it, it required a whole lot of logistical, uh, like, management. And you had to pivot and be flexible really, really quickly. So that, you know, I could tell you a range of different mm. funny stories um, where I, I utilised my personal skills, my soft skills to navigate through environments that were otherwise challenging for people uh, to help, you know, provide, like, optimal nutrition for within an environment that wasn't particularly optimal for for, athlete, uh, for athletes. And, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. It was very exhausting um, over, the, over the period. I think my average kilometres that I walked a day, um, it varied a little, but... Most of my days were, you know, upwards of twenty-six to thirty-two kilometers a day, like of, you know, walking. Um, and I've never been a step counter, but I had this phone that always reminded me of how many steps I was marching through. That, yeah, it was a really challenging window, and but it was, a, yeah, it was really enjoyable. That's and I think uh, Tokyo's 
throwing just as many challenges out there for those that are involved in that as well. And you just you won't be at Tokyo stepping back from that role this time. Yeah, so I I um I didn't think I was best positioned. I had an opportunity to perhaps be in that position, but um I chose not to because of other work commitments. But like I'll still obviously be involved. We had a catch up earlier this week around it um, and some of the logistics, and I'm I'm quite happy with just focusing on the sports that you know, that I work with. Mm. So. Um, triathlon. Um, I think I recently finished up with canoeing, but um, have, would still support canoeing if they need some additional support as well. But yeah, so I'm happy enough to focus on triathlon. And I don't think we would like I'll be requiring you know because of the sh- short you know the the um, restricted entries and requirements, um, and you know not particularly interested you know after going over there, coming back and spending two weeks in. In, uh, in quarantine anyway so yeah I think uh, they've got some really capable individuals um, and then you know part of my job is to make sure that those individuals because they won't be taking a dietitian but the people that they do take they're well skilled to be able to execute around the nutrition elements that we have planned for for Tokyo amazing uh, is it, last question here Greg um, is there any any papers the favourite one of yours that you've written and then one that you've read recently or read over time that you would recommend to the listeners? Oh, yeah. Like, I think, um, geez, it's like your favourite movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, one of my favourite studies, which I, which in, captures that coach feedback component in it, is a paper by Dave Costell, 1988. Um, I, I'm just trying to think um, exactly the paper. Let's wait. No, you're right. This always catches um, everyone by surprise. All good. Yeah, I didn't, didn't plan on this one. Um, it was, yeah, MSSS, MSSE, effects of repeated days and things by training the muscle glycogen in swimming performance. Dave Costell, and if you haven't heard of Dave Costell, like any a sports dietitian, well then you should at least read one paper of Dave. <laughs> um, Dave's in his late 80s now and has, was the guy that sort of, his research like inspired me. I was lucky enough to meet Dave sort of, you know, 10 years ago and he's a world record holder in swimming as a master competitor. He asked questions that were born from genuine engagement with coaches and athletes and, and as a physio- physiologist. And he's one of the forefathers on sports nutrition. So there's Dave Costello and others in, 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 uh, in America and Ben Saltini and others in, in the States, Ron Moore in the UK, and those guys generated a whole range of interesting questions in sports nutrition. So Dave Costello... In terms of mine, I think um, my journal of applied physiology paper 2010, which is the sort of seminal paper for my PhD, daily training with high carbohydrate availability increases endogenous carbohydrate oxidation. That was that's probably one of my favourites. Um, yeah, and that's probably the paper that's had most impact for me, like in terms of translational sort of research into practice. Awesome. And now it's probably it's probably melted down now. But how was your uh, how was your Milo out of ten? Yeah, look, it's um. Hold on. 
Smashed what, it. My mate, like, uh, like I think it's not it's not one of those beverages that you want to you want to um, you know that I want to put a number on because I think it's one of those those types of opportunities in life that you know the listeners should really go and experience for themselves. All right, so, fantastic. Um, my challenge is to make yourself file out the jar. That's awesome. And so, so recipes, a few ice cubes, a dash of milk, a couple of spoons of Milo, and a yeah. 10K ride. <laughs> Although you must, like, it's the the ice cubes and then the Milo, mate. All right, and, yeah. And then the milk. Yeah. So, yeah, so because you can also, you know, part of that process is that Milo volcano that happens, and I won't talk about that now because we're at the end of it, but... Yeah, it's this ice cubes, Milo, and then the milk. And I think if you get the order mixed up, it does change the characteristics of the beverage a little bit. Yeah. That'll be one to try. I might even be a dessert after dinner tonight. See how we go. No problems, mate. Good, good opportunity for a high, um, high training day, mate. So make sure you get some exercise in <laughs> on today as well. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. I do really appreciate it. And uh, I definitely, again, spending a little bit more time than anticipated. But no, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, mate. To finish off, as always... Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at the Cooks community. Until next time, remember to breathe.